It's great to see you all here. I'm Leslie Stein, director of the Government Law Center. And on behalf of the Government Law Center and the Women's Leadership Institute, I want to welcome all of you and Dr. Patricia Salkin, former longtime GLC director and Albany Law School professor and renowned educator, administrator, and leader. Like to discuss her new book, May It Please the Campus, Lawyers Leading Higher Education. The book traces the history of lawyers serving as college campus leaders from the 18th century to the present. Dr. Salkin, or Patty, as most of us know her, <laughs> um, will be introduced and interviewed by Jeffrey Shantz, Albany Law School Vice President for Institutional Advancement and Chief of Staff to the President. Jeff, I'll refer to him by his first name too, holds a PhD in higher education administration and policy studies. He has served in academia for over 25 years. I think you're in for a real treat. And following the interview, I invite you all to a book signing and a reception in the East Foyer. Now I'm going to pass Mike Jackson. Okay. Dr. Salkin, Patty I'll Salkin. give you the first. <laughs> we'll have to say it at least first. Um, it's, it's really an honor to, to interview you today. Um, those of you know that I'm not Alicia Ouellette. Um, Dean Ouellette, unfortunately, had a loss in her family. And so she's taking care of her uh, family matters down in Florida. So she sends her regrets. But uh, I'm happy to, to stand in for, for Alicia. Um, so I'm going to do a, a quick intro of you. I think everyone in the room could probably do this for me. They know you so well, but um, let me tell you, this is Patricia Salkin, JD and PhD now, class of uh, the great class of 1988. <laughs> She's Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs and Provost of the Graduate and Professional Division of Turo University. She's the former Dean of the Turo University Jacob D. Fuchsberg Law Center and previously served as Associate Dean, Director of the Government Law Center, and the Raymond and Ella Smith Distinguished Professor of Law at Albany Law School. At Albany Law, she was instrumental in promoting the legacy of Kate Stoneman as a founding member of the Stoneman Committee and the editor of the book, Pioneering Women Lawyers, from Kate Stoneman to the present. She also played a significant role in securing the law school's endowed Stoneman chair. And in 2019, Dr. Sulkin received Albany Law's Kate Stoneman Award which as you all know, is a prestigious award presented to individuals who've demonstrated a commitment to seeking change and expanding opportunities for women within the legal profession. And today we're here to talk about her new book, May It Please the Campus, Lawyers Leading Higher Education, which was published by Tory University Press. Dr. Salkin, Patty, nice to have you. Here. Thanks, Jeff. And congratulations on the completion of your PhD. We were talking just briefly, we were up you did a talk to faculty about three years ago, and I actually sat in on it when you were kind of grinding it all out. Right. And doing some initial research on it. I spent some time workshopping it here, and I appreciate the feedback from the faculty. Thank you. So let's just start off with uh, what made you interested in writing a book about lawyers 
leading higher education. So uh, in order to get into the PhD program, this is probably not very exciting, but in order to get into the PhD program, I had to pitch what my dissertation would be on. And the motivation for wanting to do the program was to start to move my scholarship um, in other directions, not instead of, because most of you know that I'm never gonna get rid of land use. Um, but, but I wanted to make room for uh, higher education leadership because that's sort of where my path has, has taken me. And I knew that uh, in keeping up with the land use stuff, I probably wouldn't voluntarily make the time uh, to do it. So I needed a little bit of the discipline. So this seemed like a good opportunity. And it was the first PhD program in creativity in the country at the University of the Arts. And um, I just thought it would be cool to be in the first cohort. And then thinking about creativity, I'm thinking that's what lawyers are, that's what we do. And so um, I had to pick a topic I could live with and research for several years and write about uh, within the higher ed space. And so uh, thinking about lawyers and higher ed is really what led me down the path of looking for the topic. So this book is just full of, and when you all buy the book, um, you'll see there's just so much data about lawyers who served in the, the roles. And you, like any good PhD student, you've added to the literature for sure, because no one's really done it before right. in any depth. So how'd you go about finding all these people? You have pages and pages of who they are and where they worked and all that good stuff. Yes, it, it, it was crazy because, um, I came up with the topic just reading like many people in higher ed administration do um, inside higher ed and the Chronicle of Higher Education have a daily morning newsletter that goes to your email. And there's always a section about comings and goings of people, you know, who's being appointed, who's retiring, you know, or stepping down. And I was noticing that there were a lot of lawyers that were being appointed as uh, university presidents. And when I first started seeing this to pitch the idea for the dissertation, I thought, you know, okay, you know, I have a list of about 30. So, you know, maybe there's 50, 60, 70, you know, and so when I started the program, uh, the list was small, and then I had to go and do the data collection as part of the, the work. And uh, unfortunately for me, but fortunately for the book, nobody had collected the data. And so uh, there were a few articles, there was one in Forbes, there was an article in the New York Times that mentioned a couple of lawyer presidents and made like a, a passing comment, but it was only about the two or three that they mentioned in uh, the article. And so I went to ACE, which is the American Council on Education, and they do every five or so years a survey on the American uh, college presidency and they collect all kinds of data. So I made a data request to them for uh, specifically the presidents who responded to their surveys who were JDs and asked for that data. I asked for them to identify who the presidents were and what schools they were from because that would certainly help and uh, of course, they're not a public entity. So what did I get back? Uh, we can't share most of your requests. What we can tell you is the percentage of respondents 
who said they had JDs. And we could give you some aggregate data if you make some other requests about other characteristics of those JDs, like you know, male or female or um, other uh, demographic information, um, race and ethnicity. They could tell me if they had other degrees besides the JD. Um, but they couldn't tell me the names of the, the presidents and they couldn't tell me the schools because they thought that that was confidential information from their survey. Their survey goes to 1600 uh, college and university presidents, but there are about 4,300 Carnegie classified colleges and universities. So uh, not wanting to take the easy path, I got on the websites of all 4,300 colleges and universities and went to look to see who the current president was. Then many of the schools, but not all of them, had histories of who the past presidents were. Those schools that did, I looked at all those websites, all those bios, read the bios to see what degrees those presidents had, and that started to develop the list. Then it was lots of internet searches and looking at you know, some of the um, large universities that have been here for a long time that list their notable alumni. And going through some of them had sections on alumni who were in higher ed. Then I went to the ABA Council on Legal Education to their staff and said, who do you know who's recently been appointed as a uh, college or university president? And then I just started talking to people until I felt that it was completely uh, exhausted. And so I did make publicly available, both through the book and the website, the list of all of the names of these presidents and the schools and their terms of office and lots of other data points that we can talk about. And so I, I hope that this at least is a platform for other researchers that now want to take this to another level. That's, that's great. Um, maybe we can turn our attention to crises that are in higher ed. And um, you talk a lot about the historical underpinnings of where higher ed is, and you reference a bunch of different things in the historical context. You even bring up Clark Kerr from, uh, from Berkeley, who famously said the most pressing issue in higher ed was parking, basically. Uh, Deflect any issue, just institute a parking fee temporarily, forget about whatever else is going on, and then just get rid of the fee and you'll be fine. That's a, that's a true story. That's a true story. Um, but there, there is a lot of crises in higher ed. And I think wherever you kind of insert yourself in the timeline, higher ed has been in one crisis or another. And so there's a lot of different transformations happening. And so, you know, can you elaborate a little on that and what you think are the biggest things facing higher ed? Sure. So, you know, to keep it current in the book, you know, I did talk about historical stuff, but I also opened up with what was going on during the pandemic, which I'll, I'll mention in a second, but even just yesterday, looking at the editorial in the New York Times and you know, uh, lauding other states that are saying you don't need a college degree for any government job. And, and they also threw out the stat that I think 65% of adults in the US don't have a college degree. And so you know, if we're thinking about the United States as being competitive in the world marketplace, and if you believe in higher ed and you believe in knowledge and what it can do to advance civil society, you know, that's a startling statistic. And that factors into the crisis in higher ed because enrollment is going down. And there's a, a value proposition. People are questioning what is the value of higher ed? What am I gonna get for my tuition dollars? 
Then you have some uh, governments at the federal and state levels saying we're going to give free community college tuition. So, you know, so there are some private schools that's, that's for public community colleges. There are private schools that both have two-year degrees, but then it's also the loss of the tuition revenue for the first two years if students come in in year three. So of course there is the, the great benefit to the students, but let's face it, education is also a business, right? So there's altruistic things that we do in higher education and the service that we provide, but you can't provide it if you don't have revenue and your revenue comes from a limited number of sources. And for most schools that are not heavily endowed that have been here for hundreds of years, they rely on, on tuition revenue. So all of that contributes to this growing churning and crisis in higher education, then comes the pandemic. And while higher ed did a pretty good job in, in almost every school of pivoting to remote online, well, there are a couple of things that have happened. The federal government came in to help bail out colleges and universities with the CARES Act and her funds. But most schools have just about spent all of those dollars and there's not gonna be a third bailout because we're into the new normal now. And so uh, that shot is gone in terms of helping schools get through the pandemic. But now we have a whole generation of students that prefer the flexibility of learning online. Whatever you think about it pedagogically, that's what consumers want. And so now you have a lot of schools that have a lot of investment in real estate and bricks and mortar. And they have to carry the costs on those buildings, whether students are inside the buildings or if they're online. And a lot of schools have student housing and dorm rooms that they need to fill because they bonded out the money in order to, to pay for that. And then like the parking fees and then events on campus and then the schools that are involved in athletics. I mean, they tanked in their budgets during the pandemic because there was nobody there to fill the stadium seats and there was nobody there to visit the concession stands and other, those are some of the other sources of revenue that universities use to, to budget on. And so, you know, we sort of came up with all of these things all at once. And so while CARES and HERF funding helped, now schools are trying to figure out what are we gonna do without that? And what we're seeing, if you uh, read the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed, schools are closing. They're either being shut down by your creditors or they're admitting that they're going bankrupt and they don't have funds. Schools are merging and being acquired by other institutions to very different legal actions um, that are happening. And so, you know, I think those are just some examples of uh, the immediate crisis that is facing higher ed today. Just curious, kind of building on that, you know, when it comes to enrollment in the undergraduate, it does kind of feed into the law schools too. I wonder if you, I know this might not be part of the book, but have you given some thought to that? Because we're gonna be facing a similar enrollment kind of uh, issues as we, as a law, as law schools. Right, and so, you know, really in the last 10 years, legal education has been a roller coaster of, you know, there was a, it, it really dipped. And I think uh, about 12 years ago, we were at an all time low, historical low in interest in legal education. And then, you know, four or five years later, there was an uptick. And now LSAC says that uh, the numbers are going down again. 
but you know, and again, we're going to have fewer people in undergraduate, but, but of course there's plenty of people if they see the value proposition of the JD. Right. Right. Which kind of leads us to the, really the, the meat of the book on this exponential increase in the number of lawyers who are leading campus campuses across the country. And, right. you know, what do you think accounts for that? So let, let me set it in the context of, of the numbers because it might be uh, surprising, you know, Back in the colonial era, when we were just organizing higher education uh, in the colonies, and I'll just use this, the United States eventually, the presidents of those schools were either ministers or lawyers, because that's who was really leading and building uh, society at the time. And then it sort of stopped as far as the lawyers and, and ministers went. And as higher ed was, was growing up, I think it kind of became a little bit more professionalized and it went from what we would think today about the traditional pathways of faculty who then became administrators and went up into different administrative ranks and eventually uh, they would become the presidents and we're not seeing that today and I think that the story about the lawyers coming in you know is part that there are more lawyers in higher ed, but also part, a lot of people are coming into these positions outside of the traditional uh, higher education pathway. So what I was able to uncover from the first proposal for the PhD program, where I thought I had, you know, I was onto something because I had maybe 50 lawyers. Um, we identified 662 unique presidents who had a total of 887 appointments. And so that's sort of the magnitude of where the research path took me and, you know, the story that had not yet uh, been told. But the interesting thing is what's happened recently. So what, what has been the trend over the decades? And so, you know, the data in the book shows in 1970s, um, total for that decade, there were 40 unique presidents who had 50 appointments which just means that some of them were present at, at two or more uh, institutions. By 1980, you know, again, it wasn't that dramatic an increase. It went from 40 unique presidents to 44. 1990, it went from 44 to 71. 2000, 71 to 131. 2010, 131 to 252. And in the 2020s, we're only two years into the 2020s, and there's about 70 new lawyer presidents who have been appointed in the last two years. And so if you extrapolate that out, we're going to be, you know, 350 to 400 by the end of uh, this decade. And so I think, you know, why, why this explosion? I think lots of, lots of reasons, no one thing. Certainly the rise of the regulatory state that happened in the 1980s. And like many other businesses and industries, not just higher ed, we're highly regulated by federal and state uh, governments. And so I think that compliance has something to do with it. Things like the Higher Education uh, Act, Pell Grants, the Equal uh, Employment Act, Civil Rights Act, Title IX. I mean, the list can go on. I can give you like 40 different, you know, statutes and regulations that uh, higher ed just has to deal with on a regular basis, not even the one-offs or the, the once in a whiles. I think the, the rise or the interest in lawyers at first really started um, in the 60s and 70s with 
campus unrest with the, the Vietnam War, with um, protests on campus, free speech, First Amendment uh, rights. Um, and then it also tracks the rise in legal education. And so if you think about it from those, the traditional path I mentioned, just to throw some numbers out, in 1931, we had 77 ABA approved law schools. 1951, it was 124. Today, we have 203 ABA approved law schools. But that's not even the interesting stat. If, if you think about faculty who then become associate deans and deans and who then may go into central administration, what's that number? In 1947, there were 991 full-time law professors. By 2008, there were over 8,100 full-time law professors. So we have a lot more lawyers working around uh, higher education and being familiar and, and getting involved. So we have more law professors, more associate deans, more uh, deans. Um, and then the interesting thing is, of all of the lawyer presidents, 177 of them were law professors, but the number is like almost 700. So about, you know, more than 500 were never a law professor and only 118 were deans. So more law professors became presidents than deans becoming presidents. And again, that's counter to what one might would have thought in the um, traditional path. So, you know, I think in, in, in concluding the answer, you know, lawyers have, have business skills. Um, you know, and we'll talk about that a, a little bit more, I think. Um, I'm not saying that, that all lawyers make great presidents, um, but I am saying that they can be great choices and they shouldn't be dismissed. And I think that there are many campuses and many uh, search firms who would dismiss lawyers. And I've heard this from candidates who are people who wanna be candidates um, who have not felt the warmth because they're told by the search firms that the campus is not interested in a lawyer, they want a traditional president, but yet all of these other campuses are uh, more than happy to uh, welcome them. So I, I really hope that the book uh, sort of debunks that myth a little bit. Yeah, well, you referenced to the, um, the article or the book on, or the case study, I guess, on the successful future college president and talks about the five skills that are right. needed. And it's, it's, it's fascinating because five of the skills doesn't reference some of the most important things. As a matter of fact, academia or academics was actually the least quoted or answered in the survey right. for college you know, presidency. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, so in that context, do you think then that, I guess the answer would be yes, but you're thinking that campuses will continue to look for lawyers to lead their campuses in the future? I think some campuses will. Some campuses will be open to the idea. But again, I think a lot of it is, circumstantial you know what does the campus need in any particular point in time mm -hmm. so you know one thing that i noticed in the last few years there were a lot of people appointed as uh, campus presidents who had masters in public health or medical degrees because campuses were worried about the pandemic and about the health and safety and so i think that we're a little fickle right we look for what we need at the time and you know they always say it's the right person at the right time, and then you know the, the as it turns. Right, exactly. Um, so, what surprised you the most about you know, your in your study of these? 
So my most exciting finding, and again, take this from where it comes. Yeah, you know, the, the background here with the Government Law Center, um, I couldn't believe in studying and charting out um, different data points about all of these presidents, the overwhelming majority worked in government at some point in their career. And so it sort of led me to think about, and I, I wrote a short piece about this for the ABA, what is it about government lawyers and the skills that government lawyers have that makes them desirable candidates for campus presidencies? And so, you know, in some cases, and you know, you see this in the headlines, and it's not just for the lawyers in government, but the non-lawyers as well, you know, people that are big name in public office get appointed to lead campuses. And so, you know, most recently, you know, uh, Ben Sasto in Florida, but there have been four governors who were lawyers who were appointed as campus presidents, and two were successful, and two maybe were not as, as uh, successful. Um, there have been many members of Congress that have been appointed as campus uh, presidents, and then a lot of local officials. And, you know, one of the things that I found from the lawyers, a lot of them did judicial clerkships, which maybe says something about their academics when they were in school. Uh, and then a lot of them worked at Department of Justice, and a pretty good number worked in the White House as well. And so, you know, there's a perception about lawyers and there's a perception about government and about connections in government and what that can bring to the campus in terms of capital funds that are needed and campuses sometimes need a legislative or a regulatory change to do something to help advance their agenda and knowing how government works uh, is a good thing, except I think there's more, right? When, when you're a government lawyer, and I know there's a lot in this room, um, what what is one thing that that happens on a regular basis you wake up in the morning and you look at the headline and you say got to deal with this today right and it's nothing that you plan for um but that's what the crisis of the day is and so i think government lawyers are, are good at that government lawyers are good at um, the art of compromise the art of you know no piece of legislation almost no piece of legislation ever looks the same in the end as the day that it was introduced, because there's always discussion, negotiation, compromise. There's the ability to see all sides and figure out how to get to yes in order to survive uh, in government. Um, you know, and working with people with different points of view, whether you agree with them or not. And I think that those are also really important skills. Right. So everything we do here, of course, is for our students. So maybe we can kind of turn our attention to the students and. You know, there may be some in this room who want to pursue leadership in higher education. After what you just said, I have no idea why. <laughs> no, it's a good field to be in. It's a good profession. Um, but talk to the students a little bit about, you know, what should they do? Should they teach? Should they, you know, what, what steps should they do in order to go into leadership in higher ed? So I think you can do anything that you want to do, you know, is, is the real end story from the, the data and my analysis, because clearly um, with only 177 of the 600, uh, almost 700 lawyer presidents came from being a law professor. So it is a path and it's a good path, but it's not the only path. So uh, 
a number of lawyers that are now being appointed, and this is more recent, being appointed as campus presidents are coming from boards of trustees. So last week I got a call from actually an Albany Law alum who you know, was thinking about getting into higher ed and, and in a leadership position and wanted some advice. Um, government lawyer, no uh, higher ed experience, and you know my response was you know get on a SUNY uh, board, get you know be on be on one of those boards. There's you know 64 SUNY campuses. If you can get an appointment, that's a good way because when you're on the board of trustees or the um, board of governors of any of these schools, you learn the business of the institution inside and out. So you learn the economics, you learn the academics. Um, and and that, that's one good proving ground. So 70 recent lawyer presidents came from being on the board of trustees and most of them had no other academic um, interactions other than being on those boards. Another trend, 68 recent lawyer presidents were from the general counsel's office at, the, at a college or university, maybe not the one that they became president of, although sometimes yes. <clears throat> so, you know, how do you get those in-house counsel jobs? Very few people get them right out of law school unless you did an internship uh, in that office. So you mostly have to go to the private sector first in order to get uh, that experience. And so I think doing things like labor law and compliance and higher ed law um, is a good entree into the general counsel's office. And so that's another uh, potential career path. Um, I also found a trend in people who were vice presidents for institutional advancement and doing fundraising and community relations and sometimes government relations. And more lawyers are getting those roles in higher ed. And again, that's also a transferable skill set. Um, for the university because you're known in the community and um, and you've got the visibility internally as well as the, the chops externally. And then I would say the last few years, there's been an increase in the number of positions for vice presidents for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I predict because of Title IX and other um, laws and regulations, some of those positions are going to lawyers, not all but more may. And I think that that's gonna be another stepping stone uh, to the presidency because they're high visible positions on campus. Yeah, I'm just curious. I mean, this book is a bit on leadership. So, you know, what do you feel makes for a successful leader? So I don't think it's any one thing, but I'll give you uh, my list. Okay. Um, I think that, that good leaders need to have authenticity. I think you have to have integrity. You have to have passion for what you're doing. It can't just be a job, right? It has to be, you have to believe in higher education. You have to believe in the mission of the, the campus or university and you have to live it. You have to walk the talk um, in order to get other people to go along with you. They're not gonna do it just because you have uh, the title. I think you have to be a good listener. You have to be a good communicator. And those are skills that we instill in our uh, students on a, on a regular basis. You have to be willing to spend the time and energy with all of the stakeholders because everybody wants to feel special and everybody you know, wants to be important. And, and in order to move any college or university, you need everybody to, to be with you. 
And so, you know, if your school is athletics, going to the games mm -hmm. and riding the bus with the students or the fan bus and, you know, doing things, not separating yourself because, you know, you're over here as the president, but really being a part of uh, the community. Um, and, you know, very important, surrounding yourself with excellent people. And excellent people means people that are competent, people that will tell you when they disagree with you so that you could um, have that conversation and understand why ultimately the president gets to make the decision, but you can't surround yourself with people that say yes all the time without uh, any pushback because you might be making mistakes. Um, and people that have a good work ethic, you know, again, in, in terms of how you're building your cabinet. And then I think at the end, you just can't take yourself too seriously. You know, I mean, in this day and age, you know, the, the students more than ever want access to the dean. They want access to the president. You know, I, I don't know, many of us are, are around the same age, but when, when I was here in law school, like I would never go to Dean Bartlett's office because, you know, um, he was the dean and he was very busy and he was probably the smartest person in the school. I mean, that's what everybody thought. And today that's not what higher ed is like. Um, I got a, an email yesterday. Somebody wrote a letter to the president um, wanting the president to change their grade in the class with all kinds of reasons why economically they needed their grade changed. No problems about writing to a university president when you're one of 19,000 students. And so I had to answer the, the question that uh, the president and the provost don't have the authority to change your grade, sorry. But, but, but it's, a, it's a totally different um, student body and a different aura on campus. That's true, that's true. So you've talked about successful lawyers who were campus leaders, campus presidents, but I'm sure they all weren't, I mean, they probably all weren't successful, right? I mean, not all lawyers are successful leaders. Correct. So, you know, the, the book uh, really is about the data and the analysis of the data. I started a companion website right before the book came out. Um, so my shameless plug is it's lawyersleadinghighered.com. And, and on that website, it's got a blog. And two or three times a week, I post stories about the lawyer uh, presidents, which you know are not really uh, in the book. And so I find the human interest side of this a little bit more interesting. So, you know, from, from those that weren't successful, I'll just give you a few examples because there are many. Um, Danelle Malloy is still the chancellor at the University of Maine, but uh, and he's the former governor of Connecticut. Uh, he's already had two votes of no confidence by the faculty. Um, David Boren, who's the former governor of Oklahoma, becomes the president of the University of Oklahoma, but he gets uh, embroiled in Title IX investigations. He's forced to resign and, and totally go apart from any connection to the university. He's an alum. At the end, there were no indictments that came down. But of course, that's the story that people are going to remember. It's the same thing a lot of us have dealt with government ethics. Doesn't matter if somebody uh, didn't do it in the end. The headline is what they're accused of doing. And that's what people are going to uh, remember. So you're sitting in the hot seat when you're the president. And what you do and how you conduct yourself uh, matters. Sanchez, who was the president of Oxnard uh, College, recently stepped down, I think uh, last month, because there were several harassment complaints. And rather than wait till the end of the investigation, he decided to uh, step away, another lawyer. 
um, two lawyers, Michael Garrison, who was the president of the University of West Virginia, and Joyce McConnell, who most recently was the president at uh, Colorado State, they both stepped down because they were embroiled in battles over the football coach. So when, when you are in Division I football and your teams are on TV and all of your, it's big dollars and a big deal. And um, that is uh, another place where people that want to stand based on uh, what they think legally is the right thing and morally is the right thing, you have another group of constituents who care a different way uh, about athletics. And then, you know, most recently, just another uh, law dean who uh, nobody really knows the exact extent of what the issue was, but David Yellen um, from Loyola was the president of Marist College and he stepped down pretty quickly and nobody said why, and he's back to, to deaning again, um, you know, and, and he moved on. And so that was just, um, that was interesting because I think a lot of people thought that that was a, a great match and would be successful, but we don't know exactly uh, what happened there, but the list can go on. So those are just some examples of people that, you know, you might think would have it all and be successful, but it didn't exactly pan out the way that they would have wanted. Right, right. Full disclosure, I'm a Marist College graduate. <laughs> Later, stop um, So, Stand by for some questions. We're going to turn it to the audience in a little bit. So hopefully we have some, some questions to ask. But I do want to talk about women leadership. Uh, this is a women's leadership initiative co-sponsored or co-branded event. So talk to me a little bit about you know how genders played a role, women leaders. We we have a woman president mm -hmm. at Albany Law School. Um, so I wondered, you know, what you what you gathered from that research. Yeah, so so two things. I, a, I just want to say that for the numbers that I threw out. Um, I did not include the private independent law schools yeah, because they all right. obviously have uh, lawyer presidents and it would skew the data. So I did uh, give that as a disclaimer uh, in the book. And um, I did put a chapter in about women lawyer presidents. And I basically told my committee because I didn't pull out any other group for a specific chapter. But I said, you know, hey, you know, gender, it's me. I have to put this. Uh, chapter in, uh, even if you don't want it, I'm doing it. So, uh, you know, it was interesting. There have been, of, of about the 700 uh, lawyer presidents, only 96 um, have been women. And then I looked again at the decades, and it's not going to be a surprise if you follow women in the legal profession. So in the 1970s, there were three women lawyer presidents. 1980s, uh, 5, 1990s, 10, 2015, 2010s, 57. And so far in the last two years, 25 women lawyers have been uh, appointed, new appointments. So uh, the overwhelming majority of the women um, presidents had academic uh, experience. Uh, many came from government, like Jamie Studley, who some of you know was the president of uh, Skidmore, and she had worked in the White House and the U.S. Uh, Department of Education. An increasing number of, of the women are those campus general counsel and members of the board of trustees, um, as opposed to law professors and law deans. That's sort of their entree into academia. So the first woman, to set it in context, the first woman non-lawyer president um, was appointed in 1871. Her name was Frances 
uh, Willard, and she was president of an all-women's college. It wasn't until 1925 that a woman, again, not a lawyer, got to lead a co-educational institution, and it was Emma Elizabeth Johnson, and she got to be president because her husband was president and he died. You know, something like people that take their family seats in Congress, you know, or, or in the state legislature, that's what this one reminded me of. But it wasn't until 1976 that we had our first woman lawyer president. And uh, it was fascinating. You know, many of you probably know her name, but may not have known that she was a uh, campus president. It was Frances Tarleton Sissy Farenthold. And uh, she was a, a big feminist. She became the president, the first woman president of Wells College, which was an all women's school. But, but many of the all women's schools had men presidents because women you know, weren't thought of qualified to be campus president's lawyer or not. She graduated from the University of Texas Law School in 1949, um, but it wouldn't surprise you. Again, the story is the same for so many. She took a hiatus and didn't practice law so that she could raise a family. And she doesn't come back into the legal profession until the 1960s as what? A government lawyer. So she uh, is on the, uh, she's working for the uh, city uh, human rights commission. Then she becomes the first woman elected to the Texas House of Representatives. And in 1972, Gloria Steinem, no Steinem nominates her from the floor of the Democratic National Convention to be the first woman vice presidential nominee. She doesn't get enough votes because we know that it was Geraldine Ferraro uh, later, but she had that uh, distinction. So uh, in the Texas legislature, she fought for things like civil rights to raise the reimbursement rates for uh, uh, an aid for welfare recipients. She was the co-sponsor of the Texas Civil Rights Amendment. And my favorite uh, anecdote is that she was a member of the Dirty 30. The Dirty 30 was a coalition uh, in the Texas legislature that was advocating for accountability, transparency, ethics reform, and uh, open government. And so, you know, I think that as we track, you know, I track the data from the ABA census of lawyers, and, you know, as we see more women in law school in the 1970s and then in the 80s, and today, you know, it's 50-50, and sometimes at some schools, it's a little bit more than 50 in a given year, you know, where as more women get into the profession and get into leadership roles, I suspect that that number is just going to continue to increase. Great. Okay. Let's open it up to the floor here. And uh, who has a question for Patty? Young man over here. <laughs> You're lying, aren't you? <laughs> this is Dr. Jerry Belinsky. <laughs> I, I uh, graduated from Cornell Veterinary College. And during the middle of my career, I decided I wanted to become an attorney. So I asked for the LSAT, they sent me the sample questions and I'm still a veterinarian. <laughs> like a couple of things come to my mind as you were discussing advancement. Do you think it's a good idea to be involved in politics? Well, I think that it, that it helps you know, in, in terms of background. So, you know, one of the things that 
campuses, campus leaders have to do, administrators have to do all the time is worry about town gown relationships. You know, and I think about uh, my days at the University at Albany and student housing off campus and parking off campus and, you know, relationships with uh, students voting in their uh, college community and how you're going to deal with the mayor's office and how you're going to deal with the county. And then there's also funding that goes not just through the federal and state government, but also through the local governments. So I think, you know, having, having a little bit of background and how government works uh, is a good thing. Um, you know, that's separate from should somebody who knows nothing about the business of higher education, but because they were the U.S. Senator or because they were the governor, does that make them automatically qualified? You know, I mean, the jury's out. Sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. Uh, when I was on the Cornell Board of Trustees for a period of time, and I had recommended that they get involved in politics, in other words, get involved because the, the state of New York supports the New York uh, colleges at Cornell. And the president called me, which was a surprise call, not the real president of Cornell. And he said, Jerry, you know, if we decide that we're going to go for candidate A and candidate B wins, then what? I said, well, then you go to candidate B. <laughs> That's sound that to me. Well, so, so I would say campuses tend to be neutral. I mean, they're, they don't endorse candidates and they don't give campaign contributions. And there's laws about giving equal access. If you're going to have one person to campus while they're campaigning, you have to have the other person come. But if somebody is already in office and it's not election time, it's a good idea to invite them to campus and see what you're all about and show off a little bit and start to develop those relationships. Well, they did eventually form a government development uh, committee on the board. But uh, one last question, which is your, in your advancement, whether it's to become a president of the university or not, what is more important, uh, who you know or what you know? <laughs> so I, I, I think that uh, to get through the process in the, uh, the way that, that presidents are typically selected, right? Often, it's most often, it's a national search. And, you know, there's a search committee that comes from uh, members of the campus community, lots of different constituencies. And, you know, in that case, I think you really have to know your stuff because it's not who you know at that point, it really is what you know. Um, but, but every once in a while, you know, you have governors that get to appoint campus leaders and they appoint people that they know, you know, or boards that they control appoint people who they know. But I would say it happens and it's been in the headlines in the last year, but of 4,300 colleges and universities, it's the exception today rather than the rule. Yeah, I, I always tell young people when I meet them, in the beginning of your, of your life, you learn what to know. And near, later on, you learn who to know and who to know gets you further. But I'm probably wrong on that, but that's, been my, that's my Maybe I'm giving you a politically correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hi, Diane Wilson. Uh, I just wanted to come back to something that you talked about. 
Many of the folks were gotten with the notice. And Hidden Brain recently had a part of that on what makes you hatchers. And there was a psychologist who something from a report that he did, which is based two years old, about lawyers, and that it was finding that lawyers who were ultimately hatchers had been government lawyers, but that the majority of the victims who went to law school um, in an idealistic way actually were finding themselves going away from what they went into. So they might have gone to law school hoping to be in the culture department, but then they did well and got sort of um, following the shiny object of uh, the money. Uh, and go into a walker and then had to come back to some of the And I'm just wondering if, in the thread of what we were doing in the research, if you were seeing that they started out in government service or they wound up going government service and then going to the continents. Like, what, what, where was their sort of yeah. track of along their government service? And are they ultimately? Where they ultimately happening, and that's what like these ten years. Yeah. So, so most of the lawyer presidents were government lawyers early on in their career, or right before they went into higher ed. Um, but, but most of them had not been in private practice and then in government. But, but some were. But again, that I didn't see that as the majority. But then, you know, to happiness, um, I recently wrote a, a blog post about a lawyer president who um, he just said, I mean, I, I listened to interviews that these people had done that were on YouTube and podcasts, and I read interviews in school newspapers. I mean, I really tried to find the essence of who some of these lawyer presidents were rather than just their static bio on the, the website. And there was, you know, one guy who said, Ever since I was a kid, I, I was a swimmer and my his father took him to Yale University to the swim meets and he was just enraptured with the architecture and the idea of a college campus. And, you know, by the time he went to college and law school, that's where he felt comfortable. He was always he's interested in the architecture and the sense of place, but also in the, the campus community. And, you know, his happiness is being president of a place where he wants to be because he is a campus person, you know, and that's sort of from planning and architecture and the things that interested him. And you see that when you look at what he's done on his campus and the planning and the design and how he uses the buildings. And he takes a lot of time to talk about that because that's what matters to him. And that's what makes him happy. You know, you have a lot of stories that kind of, it sounds like you've collected a lot of stories in this book. Do you have a favorite one that you want to share? So the stories are not in the book. The stories are on the blog on the website. Your committee allowed you to put it in the book, right? <laughs> that, that's right. They, they said, you have to finish the book. Don't, don't keep going down some more. But, but let me just share a few little tidbits of some of the stories that you can find you know, on the blog. Um, I think one of my favorites is Anthony Appel, who was the president at Franklin and Marshall College for six days before he resigned. <laughs> and so, so why did he resign in six days? He was a member of the board of trustees. Remember, I said trustees is a pathway. And uh, apparently the board of trustees summarily dismissed the president without faculty input. 
And then the board appoints one of their own who was an, also an alum of the school to be the president. Well, the faculty, those of you that are faculty members here, the faculty goes crazy and how could the board do that? And so they write to AAUP, which is the union for uh, faculty members and they um, create all kinds of protests and they write letters. I mean, I read the letters in the student uh, newspaper and he's an alum of the school. And I think this is a good sign of lawyer leadership also he realizes that he is not going to be a successful president, that this was not done the right way. And maybe there's a sense of fairness and due process here that we are inculcated with as, as lawyers because the outgoing president who was dismissed like never got a hearing, never got told you know, what was going on. The faculty didn't have input. And so he loves the school because he's an alum and he decides that the best leadership move is to announce he's not gonna stay as president and he'll stay on as long as it takes to get a replacement, which I think was like 57 uh, days. And so, you know, I mean, I, I thought that that was a really good thing for somebody to do because he wasn't thinking about himself and his career or his ambition. Somebody else in his family had been president of the college and it's a college that he loved, um, but, but he saw the greater good and what a leader uh, had to do. I thought that was a good story. Um, Today I put up on the blog, but I haven't put it up on social media yet. Michelle Anderson is the current president of Brooklyn College. She's the former Dean of CUNY Law School. If you read her regular bios, just standard law school Dean, um, nothing that, that looks out of the ordinary. If you dig a little bit more on the internet, when uh, President Anderson was in her teens, she was a feminist back then, and uh, she was very opposed to beauty pageants. And so she figured out a way, she had a, a, a plan, which, you know, she may say that, you know, thinking back, I don't know if she knows that she would do the same thing. I did talk to her about it. Um, she uh, loses weight. She spends money on all kinds of beauty aids that were not her thing. Um, and gets, uh, wins the second time around the Miss Santa Monica uh, pageant that gets her a, a spot in the Miss California beauty pageant. And just as they're about to announce the winner of the Miss California beauty pageant, she pulls out a banner from her bra that talks about how beauty pageants degrade women. And of course, she disrupts the whole beauty pageant. She makes national news, you know, at the time. And, you know, I mean, I think that, and her scholarship is all on rape and sexual assault. I mean, she's been committed to that ever since she was a, a young person. It's who she is. Um, but, but she did tell me that she thinks that she lost some jobs along the way because of that advocacy. Again, it wasn't violent disruption, but it was making a, a, a point. And so, you know, I think that, I've looked into some interesting stories, which, which you can uh, read more about. <laughs> Great. Yes. It's obvious that uh, you really enjoyed these stories and anecdotes, and uh, you have a blog going. Have you thought about writing another book with some of these anecdotes and maybe like takeaways like from these stories of why some were successful, presidents not, uh, or yeah, just too much work right now? <laughs> There's a lot of work to write another book, but but the reason that I'm doing it is with the idea that this could be a, a, another kind of book because this book is really more about the data, the analysis, the skills, 
Um, there are some lawyer presidents mentioned, but not in the same context as the stories uh, on the blog. So uh, Steve Trachtenberg, who is uh, a two-time lawyer president at uh, University of Hartford and George Washington University, he wrote a book um, for John Hopkins Press on presidencies derailed, which was why presidents, not just lawyer presidents, but presidencies uh, don't make it. And uh, Steve was one of the people on my dissertation committee. And so he's encouraged me to like, in another book, not the dissertation, tell, tell uh, these stories because I think that's what, what makes it interesting. So the blog is a way to again, discipline myself, to do the research on these people, you know, a, a couple of weeks and tell uh, those stories. And it's not different from, I know I have some land use friends in the audience. I do the law of the land blog because I have to update New York zoning law and practice and American law of zoning every year and I can't sit with 300 land use cases, you know, once or twice a year and go through all of them and be able to update the treatises. I have to do it a little bit at a time. So I put them for free on the blog for everybody and then figure out a way and where they go and are placed in the, the treatise for lawyers. So I find the blogs are a good way to organize my own work, keep myself disciplined and share it with people as I go along. Maybe last, last question, Bob. Is there any correlation between control of the university and appointment of the lawyer president? I think, like, you know, is it more often public, private, or religious control institutions? So that, that's a great question, and there's a lot of data in the book on that. Because, and let me just tell you, as as part of this, the data points in the book. If you're interested, I look to see uh, the lawyers uh, who are appointed at public schools, private schools. Um, community colleges, HBCUs, and religiously affiliated schools. Then I looked at which states had the most number of, of lawyer presidents, but I also said in the context of the number of colleges and universities in those states to see if the percentages kind of matched or if anything was uh, out of the ordinary. Um, I looked to see again, you know, if they were trustees, if they were GCs, if they were uh, fundraisers. I looked at gender, but did not look at race and ethnicity because I did not do surveys of the presidents. And so I think if people can't self-identify, then you can't count that. But what I did do was use the ABA um, census of lawyers, um, which does have demographic information in terms of race and ethnicity. And I paired that with the ACE data that they shared on the race and ethnicity of lawyers to see if it was tracking with the ABA census of lawyers in the profession, and it was pretty close. And so, you know, again, just lots of different data sets and data points. I looked at where everybody went to law school to say, does it matter where you went to law school? Albany Law School has three lawyer presidents, just by, by way, you know, of, of mentioning. And you can look, I think almost every law school, not everyone, but almost everyone has uh, somebody who was a lawyer. So it's not that you had to go to an Ivy League law school, but I compared the numbers to also the top 20 uh, law schools by US News and World Report, whether you believe in US News and World Report or not anymore, that's another uh, topic of, of the day, but trying to, to cut the data that way. And I also looked at what degrees besides the JD um, that they had post back, um, and a growing number have MBAs as well. Do you have a question? Yeah. I was actually going to ask almost exactly the same question. Is it public, private? Uh, it doesn't matter what level, what type of university or college it is. 
uh, are some types of colleges more likely to have people with JDs in that role? Yeah, no, I think it was, there, there was a pretty uh, even split. I think that there's been an increase in the number of lawyers at religiously affiliated schools. And my answer for that on the why is because they have to walk that fine line with government funding if they're going to take it and being able to abide by their religious values. And so I think that a lot of schools have gotten into trouble. And so um, they, they have tended to gravitate more and more the last couple of decades to lawyers. Again, not all of them and not the overwhelming majority, but enough that there's a trend in uh, the increase. Not a lot of lawyers leading community colleges. And I think that's because um, many lawyers probably did not have the community college experience. And, you know, but a lot of community colleges have paralegal programs. So I do think that there are lawyers who are teaching at community colleges and there's the potential to, to see more in the future. So in the end, Patty, do you see, um, you know, it all comes down to impact, right? Mm -hmm. And what kind of impact lawyer presidents are gonna have on the future of higher education. And I wondered, you know, as the final word, what do you think? So, you know, again, I don't think with, with 4,300 colleges and universities that are Carnegie schools, which, and there are more than just the Carnegie schools, do I think that having a lawyer president um, or a growing number of lawyer presidents is going to change how higher education operates or what we expect from higher education? I don't. I think that uh, the point of the, the book and the outcome here is to let the search committees and to let the campus communities know that you know, it's okay to have a lawyer as president, <laughs> that, that it's really not unconventional or non-traditional anymore because that's what the news counts had been. And the only other pieces of research that I could find in, in secondary source literature about lawyer presidents were a scant number of other PhD dissertations that talked about non-traditional presidents and some of them included lawyers in that non-traditional. And so, you know, I hope that lawyers are just more mainstream now and thought of as more mainstream and viable uh, candidates and uh, then the book would have been worth it. Terrific. Well, Patty, um, congratulations on the book. Welcome back to Albany Law School. And, um, you know, a dissertation is a real heavy lift. It's, it's not easy to do. And uh, I think you produced a really tremendous book. Uh, but more importantly, you know, and one of the penultimate things is that you've lit a path for future students to take a little piece of your research and build on it. So I think that's very impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. Some of you probably aren't really that interested in the topic and I appreciate you coming out to be supportive. And I wanna thank, uh, Judge Stein and, and Patrick Woods for uh, agreeing to do this and Dean Willette, who you know you heard unfortunately can't be here and, and Jeff um, and the, the IA staff. Thank you very much for, for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.